All right, good morning. So this morning we are continuing our series, um, Wayward. This is Wayward Part 2, and it's a series through the book of Hosea in the Bible. So if this is Part 2, that means we began this series with Part 1 last week. And before we move into what Part 2 is about, we really probably should review some of what we covered last week, because some of what we covered last week really is foundational to understanding this week's passage. If you weren't here last week, some of this is going to sound crazy to you. Although, honestly, last week sort of seemed crazy anyway. It's a very, a very unusual Bible passage. Um, but it's been helpful to know last week's passage going into this one. And so I will give you just some of the basics in case you weren't here. Um, in chapter one of the book of Hosea, which is what we learned last week, we see that the prophet of God in Israel's name is Hosea. And he is preaching to the people of Israel and one of the things that God says to him in the very first beginning of the chapter, in fact, it's verse two of the chapter, it says, go and marry a promiscuous wife and have children of promiscuity for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. Hosea marries a woman, her name is Gomer. We find that out in the next verse. And Gomer is unfaithful to Hosea, okay? And this was all part of God's plan. She is unfaithful to Hosea and she cheats on him. And we're gonna see that she cheats on him multiple times. She is very unfaithful to him. And God says, this is so that the land, I think he's saying, so that this, the land will see that they are committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. That he's saying they should be able to look at Hosea and Gomer and go, wow, look at how Hosea is being faithful and look at how Gomer's being unfaithful. And then they were supposed to look at that and go, well, that's us. Like if we look at that and go, wow, that's awful. We should also look at ourselves and go, wow, we are awful because we've been cheating on God. We've been unfaithful to God spiritually, just like Gomer is physically to her husband. And so we see that um, God and Israel are analogous of Hosea and Gomer. And then there's three children that are mentioned in chapter one. And the three children's names are prophecies of judgment that's coming on Israel. And then at the end of the chapter, we see that there's restoration. So that was Hosea chapter one. And so today we now move on to Hosea chapter two. I'm going to start reading in Hosea 2, 2. I'm going to read all the way to the end of the chapter, and then we'll go from there. So here's our text for this morning. Hosea 2, starting in verse two. Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the promiscuous look from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and expose her as she was on the day of her birth. I will make her like a desert and like a parched land, and I will let her die of thirst. Have you ever heard this read out loud in church? Yeah. Who's getting baptized today? Can I see? Who's the person getting baptized? Are you in the room yet? Okay. You're probably never going to forget the text that was preached on your, on your baptism day, okay? I don't, this is a, I don't know if it's a blessing or not, but, but you, I don't think you'll ever forget it. All right, so, um, I will have no compassion on her children because they are the children of promiscuity. Yes, their mother is promiscuous. She conceived them and acted shamefully for she thought, I will go after my lovers, the men who give me my food and water, my wool and flax, my oil and drink. Therefore, this is what I will do. I will block her way with thorns. I will enclose her with a wall so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but not catch them. She will seek them, but not find them. And then she will think, I will go back to my former husband, for then it was better for me than now. She does not recognize that it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil. I lavished silver and gold on her, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my new wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and linen, which were to cover their, her nakedness. Now I will expose her shame in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her from my hands." I will put an end to all her celebrations, her feasts, new moons and Sabbaths, all her festivals. I will devastate her vines and fig trees. She thinks that these are her wages that her lovers have given her. I will turn them into a thicket and the wild animals will eat them. 
And I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she burned incense to them and put on her rings and jewelry and went after her lovers but forgot me. This is the Lord's declaration. Therefore, I'm going to persuade her, lead her to the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her vineyards back to her and make the valley of Achor into a gateway of hope. There she will respond as she did in the days of her youth, as in the days she came out of the land of Egypt. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration, you will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they will no longer be remembered by their names. On that day, I will make a covenant for them with the wild animals and the birds of the sky and the creatures that crawl on the ground. I will shatter bow, sword, and weapons of war in the land and I will enable the, enable the people to rest securely. I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness and you will know Yahweh. On that day, I will respond. This is the Lord's declaration. I will respond to the sky and it will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the oil and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her in the land for myself and I will have compassion on no compassion. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he will say, you are my God. So there's a lot in there. There's a lot of ancient imagery. There's a lot of stuff that's foreign to us, right? There's a lot of stuff in there. And I'm not going to try to answer every possible question that someone could ask about this text. Rather, to keep this sermon easier to follow, I'm going to try to organize it around four questions. Okay? Instead of answering every question, I'm going to try to answer four big questions. And I think these questions will help us to get like, to the root, to the most important like, thing that's being said in this chapter. So here are the four questions I want to answer. Uh, question number one, who is this about? We just read a whole chapter about someone, and we've got breasts and lovers and wages and all this stuff in here. Who is this about? Question number two, what was the problem? Question number three, what was God's response? And then question number four, what does this have to do with us? So those are the four questions. Who is this about? What was the problem? What was God's response to the problem? And then what does this have to do with us in this room in the year 2024? So let's start with the first question, who is this about? Okay, so as we're going through, like the whole sermon's going to sort of, we're going to hang everything on these four questions. So here's the first question. Who is this about? And we just read all these verses. Who's being spoken to in this passage? And for those of you who were here last week, you probably will be able to figure this out. There's, there's kind of only two options. So another way of saying this, another way of asking who is this about is to ask the question, is this chapter about Gomer or is it about Israel? Okay, Gomer's the name of the promiscuous woman from chapter one that was cheating on Hosea. But, we, but she's compared to Israel who has abandoned the Lord. So this chapter, is it being addressed to, is this Hosea speaking to Gomer or is this God speaking to Israel? I think the answer is fairly obvious, but I guess it's a little complex in this. Israel is being compared to Gomer and her behavior, like what she is doing physically to Hosea by cheating on him over and over and over again. Is, that's, that's the analogy that's being made as far as Israel's unfaithfulness and cheating on God over and over and again. So for Gomer to be the illustration, it seems to me the gist of this chapter has to mostly apply to her. Like it would have to be true about her for the analogy to work. So for instance, in verse five, when it says, yes, their mother is promiscuous, she conceived them and acted shamefully, she thought, I will go after my lovers, the men who give me my food and water, my wool and flax, my oil and drink. I would imagine Gomer must have been doing something like this for Israel to be compared to her, right? So we see that Gomer is unfaithful. She is cheating on her husband. She's committing adultery, but she is doing this with, not, with multiple people, right? Lovers, 
So she's cheating on him over and over and over again. And it looks like something sort of like prostitution is what's happening, right? She's not just finding other lovers, but rather it's men who give her food and water, wool and flax, oil and drink. In verse 12 of the same chapter, you see another reference to this kind of prostitution imagery. Um, here, can you give me verse 12? Um, I will devastate her vines and fig trees. She thinks that these are her wages that her lovers have given her, right? So, so it seems to me if Israel's being compared to Gomer, then what was Gomer doing? I would think something similar to, if not exactly the same as prostitution must have been happening with Gomer's unfaithfulness for Israel to be compared to her. Having said that, the chapter's mostly about Israel. And it's really obvious that it's mostly about Israel because even though there are a few places that are not about a nation because you can tell it's about lovers and breasts and stuff, but there are, most of it actually is something that could not be about a woman. It would have to be something that's about a whole nation, okay? At least it seems to me. Let me point out to you why I think this chapter is primarily about Israel and it's God speaking to Israel. Look at verse eight. Verse eight says, she does not recognize it is I who gave her the grain, okay? So who's the she and who's the I? Is it Gomer doesn't recognize that Hosea gave her grain? Is that, what, is that what's being said here? Is that what Hosea is saying? Well, let's keep reading. She does not recognize that it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil. I lavished silver and gold on her, and then what? Which they used for Baal. So it's not that she went and cheated on him, right? The she there worships other deities. In this case, it's just it says Baal, but in other, if you notice in one of the other verses, I think it's verse 13, it says Baal's plural. You can tell there was multiple deities involved. So Israel's cheating on God with multiple deities. You look at this and you realize, no, the she there is Israel, right? She does not recognize that God is the one that gave her grain. God is the one who caused the harvests to be good. The reason the economy was going well is because God was blessing them and their vineyards and their olive trees. And he lavished all this stuff on them. And then they worshiped other gods instead. If you look at verse 12, you'll see it's there too. Verse 12 says, I will devastate her vines and fig trees. She thinks that these are wages that her lover have given her. I will turn them into a thicket and the wild animals will eat them. Well, I realize the middle sentence does sound like a woman. She thinks that these are her wages that her lovers have given her, right? Because that's the comparison with Gomer, the prostitution metaphor being used here. But the, but the other passages don't really fit. It's not, this is not Hosea talking to Gomer. Hosea saying, all right, Gomer, you've been cheating on me and cheating on me, so I'm going to go out there and I'm going to ruin your garden, okay? I'm just going to mess up with the fig trees and I'm going to uproot the vines. No, that's not what it is. Right? And then he says, after this, I will turn them into a thicket and the wild animals will eat them. Goodness, who, just, who controls wild animals? Right? He said, obviously, whoever's speaking in this verse is saying, because of your unfaithfulness, I'm going to destroy your crops. I'm going to turn the agricultural land into a thicket. It's going to be like woods with animals roaming around. It's not going to be farms anymore. I'm getting rid of all the farms. I'm going to destroy the agriculture. This is God speaking to Israel saying, I've blessed you and blessed you and you've, you've been unfaithful to me, so I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy all this stuff that, that you take for granted. Uh, verse 13 is similar. I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she burned incense to them, right? This is Israel um, cheating on God with other deities. Put on her rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but forgot me. Who's the me there? Is it Hosea? No, look, this is the Lord's declaration. This is God speaking to Israel. Maybe one of the most obvious ones is verse 15. Verse 15, it says, there I... We'll give her vineyards back to her, make the valley of acorn to a gateway of hope. Now look at this. There she, we got to figure out who's the she. There she will respond as she did in the days of her youth. Ooh, who, who is this? As in the day she came out of the land of Egypt. Okay, Bible scholars. Who came out of the land of Egypt? Israel did. If you've ever read the book of Exodus or even like watched a movie about Exodus, you know Moses said, let my people go, and the people came out of Egypt. That's who's being referred to here. I don't even know if Gomer ever visited Egypt one time. 
but he looks back to when he had this early relationship with Israel coming out of Egypt. So the answer to the first question, who is this about? Mostly Israel is what chapter two is about. All right, so let's go to the second question. What was the problem? Okay, so who is this about? Mostly Israel. What's the problem that God's concerned about? And the answer is spiritual adultery, abandoning the Lord. Just as Gomer was committing physical adultery and going after other lovers, so Israel was abandoning the Lord and going after other gods. Verse 13 specifically said that they worshiped the Baals. Verse 8 is also very interesting as to what Israel was doing. Look at what verse 8 said. We already looked at it once, but I want you to see it again, thinking of it as Israel. She, Israel, does not recognize that it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil. I lavished silver and gold on her, which they used for Baal. Israel did not recognize that the blessings that were in their life were from God, the God of the Bible. Israel did not recognize that all of the good things, the fact that the economy was going well, the fact that they had plenty of money, the fact that there was plenty of food, the fact that all the sheep were reproducing and wow, we have so much wool, everything was going so well, they didn't recognize these blessings were from God and they even took resources from God and used them for another God. I want you to think about this. God gave them silver and gold. They took the silver and gold from their God and then made another God with it and worshiped that instead of the God that gave them the silver and gold. Whew, it is a good thing that we don't do anything like this in the year 2024. Oh, I'm so thankful that this is some sort of weird kind of evil that happened a long time ago and nobody would ever consider doing anything like this. Whew, that was close. Listen, we... I will admit, we don't worship Baals anymore. I've never met a person who worships Baal. But we do this. We take resources from God and turn them into something that we then value more than God. Probably every single person in this room has done this. Have you ever thought about it from that angle, though, before? That we think about what we do with our money. Every single dollar that you have ever had is from God. God has given you every dollar you've ever had. And we take dollars that God has given us and we use them to create things that we then value more than God. We take dollars God has given us and trade them for some other thing and then worship that thing instead of God. And when you think of it from that angle, that's insane, isn't it? And we're doing it. We're doing what they were doing. And it's not just, I mean, idolatry is something that you can do with more than just money. There are non-financial things that can become idols. Let me give you another example. I believe children are a gift from God. But children can become an idol. You can practice idolatry with children. Let me, I think there's more than one way to do it. Let me give you one explanation. I can imagine some people practice idolatry when they treat their children like they're little gods in the house. And you, well, you just you get to do whatever, whatever Junior wants. That's what Junior gets. Whatever, right? Junior wanted, Junior gets it. And that's what we do. And the whole house kind of revolves around that. And we got to make sure that Junior's happy. And we got to make sure that like, well, he can believe whatever he wants and he can do whatever he wants. He can behave however he wants. We could put him in timeout. I'm not going to put him in timeout. That might make him unhappy. I don't want him to be unhappy because everything revolves around what the children want. They're like little deities in the house. Have you seen this? Yeah, it's not good. It's not good for you and it's not good for the kids. And then you might say, oh, well, I don't do that. I punish my kids all the time. I must be a great parent. Hold on. <laughs> I think there's more than one way to practice idolatry with your children. 
You could also be someone that punishes your kids all the time. You could also be someone that micromanages every single little area of their life. And you say, this is the scholarship you're going to get, and this is the grades you're going to get, and this is the sports you're going to play, and this is the after-school club you're going to be a part of, and this is the community service you're going to do. This is the scholarship you're going to get, because by golly, I'm going to make sure you become what I wish I had been. I'm going to value my will for my life, like what I want, and my will for your life more than even what God's will is for your life. I don't, even, I don't know what God's will is for your life. All I know is I should have been an accountant. I should have been a major league baseball player, and it didn't work out for me, but I can live a second life through you. But you're going to have to cooperate, and I will make sure you do, right? <laughs> have you seen it? Multiple ways to make idols out of things in this world. What about our bodies? Right? We can idolize things purchased with money. We can idolize children. But your body is actually a gift that God has given you. God has graciously given you the body that you have. And what do we do with our bodies? Many times we go, well, it's my body to do with whatever I want. I mean, this is definitely true in the culture that we live in. Like sexually speaking, that's, that's just the air we're breathing right now. Is, well, what, 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 what am I allowed to do with my body? Well, whatever, whatever I, like, how do I know if I ought to do it? Well, if I want to. That's how I know I ought to. I'll do whatever I want with my body. It's my body. And if someone wants to judge me and say, well, you shouldn't do that with your body. Well, it's not your body. It's my body. I'll do whatever I want with it. I mean, this is even the foundation underneath, like, the abortion movement, right? My body, my choice. I didn't make that up. Like, that's what they put on their signs, right? But the perspective from God's word is, it's not your body. It's his body. You're supposed to do with it what he wants. And so when we take what God gives us, what God graciously gives us, and turn it into an alternative object of worship, that's idolatry. And it doesn't have to be named Baal. That's idolatry. When we take what God has given me and turn it into some other thing and then worship that thing, that's idolatry. And idolatry, I believe, is at the root of every single sin. All the sins. Underneath it all is idolatry. There are a lot of sins. Murder's a sin, stealing's a sin, lying's a sin, gossip's a sin. But underneath them is idolatry. Because when you reject God, like whenever you, whenever you reject God's ways or God's values or God's rules, you don't just reject God. You always elevate something else in his place every time. You don't just go, well, I don't like that, I'm not going to do it. Okay, but then what are you going to do? Not, not nothing, right? I'm going to do this other thing that I value more. You don't just reject God. You always elevate something else in his place. Their problem's our problem. So let's move to the third question. What was God's response? So who is this about Israel? What was the problem? Spiritual adultery. What was God's response? Well, actually, God had a lot of response. Um, he had more response than we can get to this morning. There's, just in this chapter, there's more response than we can get to this morning. And honestly, his response is the rest of the book. Like Hosea all the way to chapter 14 is God responding to Israel's unfaithfulness. But to make this simple, what I think I'm going to do is just zoom in on three places where the word therefore is used. There, in this particular chapter, there are three therefores. And every single one of them is Israel did something wrong, and then it's the word therefore, and then it's followed by God's response to the thing before the therefore. So Israel did this, therefore, I'm going to respond to what Israel did with this. And so the three therefores are in verse 6, verse 9, 9 and verse 14. Said that very weirdly. Verse 6, verse 9, and verse 14. So I'm going to go ahead and just point out the, th the three therefores. So verse 6. Therefore, this is what I will do. I will block her way with thorns. So this comes right after the verse about how um, Israel is going after multiple lovers, right? Therefore, like in response to Israel's unfaithfulness, this is what I'm going to do. 
God's response is, I'm going to block her way with thorns. What does that mean? I don't know for sure, but I will let you know. If you look and see most scholars and commentators that write about this, almost all of them point out that this is probably an agricultural metaphor, that they use thorns in order to keep animals in certain areas. Like thorn bushes were what's used to keep the goats in a particular spot or to keep the, the sheep in a particular spot or whatever. So the idea of I will, I will block her way with thorns is like I will fence her in, okay? Which matches the next clause. I, I will enclose her with a wall. God is saying I'm going to add some limitations. I'm going to restrict what's going on here. She will pursue her lovers, but not catch them. I'm going to make her not able to do some of this, right? She will seek them, but not find them. And then she will think, I will go back to my former husband, for then it was better for me than now. I don't know if they're repentant at this point or when they're saying this, but it seems to me God is saying, I'm going to put in these restrictions so that she will go, it was better than before. It was better, better to be faithful to God. Than to, be faithful, than to be unfaithful to God and be with all these other gods. I will go back to my former husband for then it was better for me than now. When I first read that, um, at least more recently, like I think it was end of December that I was reading through Hosea. And when I read that, there was a passage in the New Testament that like, came into my mind as soon as I read it. Like I thought of another Bible passage. I don't know if it's as part of the story of the prodigal son. You guys remember that part of the story? So this is... The prodigal son, if you've never heard it before, and I just talked to somebody not too long ago, they were like, I've never heard that story before. And so I'm telling you right now, you've got to read the story of the prodigal son. It is found in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. I don't care if you're a Christian, not a Christian, whatever. You need to read this story just for its literary value alone. It's one of the most significant stories that's ever been told. So Jesus tells the story. I'm not going to read the whole story. What I'm going to do is just read the part of it that reminded me of Hosea. And so here's how it goes. Uh, there's a father and a son. The son rejects his father. He takes his inheritance early, takes his dad's money with him and abandons his father and goes out to some other place far away from his father and blows all of his money on foolish living. And then this is the next part that happens. This is Luke 15, starting in verse 14. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. And then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. And when he came to his, what's the word? Senses. He said, how many of my father's hands have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up and go to my father, right? Go back to my father, right? I'll go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. God does use bad circumstances to bring people back to him. God uses bad circumstances to draw his people back to him. And so we see this in Hosea. I will go back to my former husband for then it was better for me than now. All right, let's go to the second therefore. So the second therefore is in verse nine. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time. This is in response to the Israel didn't recognize that the grain is from me. Therefore, God says, I will take back my grain in its time my new wine in season. I will take away my wool and linen, which to cover her nakedness. What is this? This is a punishment from God, God taking back blessings that he had previously given. They didn't recognize that the blessings were from him, but he is the one that had been giving them the good harvests. He's the one that had been giving them all the good stuff that they had. And so he says, because they don't recognize it, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take it back. 
My punishment is me taking back my blessings from them. And it may be that this was an act of grace in the sense that he would then reveal to them that the Baals are false gods. Because you could remember, if this very well could be what happened. And even in uh, verse 12, if you remember earlier, it says, these, she thinks these things are the wages her lovers have given her. It may very well be that Israel, they're living their life, things are going normal, and then they start, they start cheating on God, right? They start worshiping these other gods. They start burning incense to Baal, and they start worshiping these other deities. And then the crops start doing well. And the vineyards are doing well, and the fig trees are great, and the sheep are all multiplying. And it could be that they think to themselves... It's worshiping these false gods that has brought this prosperity into our life. And it may be very well that God is going like, but this is all from me. I told you this is all from me. And if you're going to think it's from these false gods, I'll just take it back. And you'll see that it's not them. They're doing nothing for you. I'll take it back and make sure you see that. The grain's not from them. I'll take back my grain. Then you'll see, whoa, wait, we're worshiping Baal and there's no grain. And so God is taking back his blessings. And I wanted to point out, I think this is important to get, that this is not unjust. God has the right to do this. If you notice, the passage says, therefore I will take back, now what's the word? My grain. Whose grain is it? Yeah, it's his grain. How can God take something away from someone? It's his. He can take away his stuff whenever he wants. I will take back my grain. I will take back my new wine in its season. I will take away my wool and linen. God continues to own everything. He can take anything whenever he wants. And sometimes I think people charge God with injustice. They go, well, how dare God take something away from me? I had this blessing in my life and now it's gone. This thing, things were going well and then it wasn't going good. And I mean, I, I think I've heard plenty of people, Christians do this and non-Christians do this, that they blame God and go, well, how could I? You must be cruel for allowing this and take, I, things were going so well and now they're not going well. How dare you take something from me? God has the right to do whatever he wants with his stuff whenever he wants. It's crazy to me that we even think it's unjust. Like, like people sometimes will, you know, some, some bad will happen and go, well, you know, I, don't, I don't like this. Well, why would, why would God permit such a thing? Well, he can do whatever he wants. Well, I don't think he should. How, how dare God? I think some people would even say that God's sort of like a hypocrite. How could he? God tells us we're not supposed to take things from people, but then he takes things from people. God tells us we're not supposed to kill people, but then he kills people. Have you noticed that in the Bible? Like there are times where someone's sinning and then God takes them out, right? And so wait, we go, well, God, this, this isn't right because like, I'm, if I'm angry at someone, I don't just get to kill them. Why do you get to be angry at someone and get to kill them, right? I don't think you ought to do that. And this is important for you to get. That's not your call. Like we aren't like God. We're on a whole different level than God. Do you realize that? Like previous generations didn't even need to be told this. They just assumed they were not equal to God. They didn't go, well, I should be able to do it. He should do have by the stick. What? No, no, no. You don't, get to, you don't get to take things from people because their stuff's not your stuff. God can rearrange his stuff on this earth whenever he wants. You don't get to take someone's life because it's not your life to take. You didn't create them. You're not the one sustaining them. You're not the one giving them every single breath in their lung every single day. Well, hopefully they have more than one lung. Lungs. <laughs> God is the one who gives life and sustains people, and he can end it whenever he wants. He can take back life whenever he wants. In fact, he will eventually to all of us. And so this idea, well, I'm not allowed to do it. How could God be allowed to do it? Like God is on a whole different level than us. He retains ownership of everything in the world. He can do whatever he wants. He can move stuff around whenever he wants. He can end your life whenever he wants. None of that is unjust. And in this particular passage, as Israel 
is cheating on him over and over and over again, and they are constantly unfaithful, it is not unjust for him to say, I'm removing the blessings so that you can see what I was doing and what the Baals were not doing. And then verse 14 is the third therefore. So we got a therefore in six, we got a therefore in nine, and then verse 14. But 14 is the shocking one. This was pointed out to me. It's, it, if, if you, it, it's the, it's the, it doesn't fit the pattern, right? As you're reading the passage, you'll notice like the first therefore, the second therefore, and then you get to the third one, you go, the third one doesn't match one and two, okay? Look at the third one. This is verse 14. Therefore, I am going to, what's the word? Persuade her. You'd think it'd be like crush her at this point. Therefore, I am going to persuade her, lead her to the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Do you see how that does not match? There's something interesting going on here. In the first therefore in verse six was, hey, Israel's bad, therefore I will block her way with thorns. In verse nine, Israel is bad, therefore I will take my grain back. In verse 14, Israel is bad, therefore I'm gonna win her back. That's, that's a surprising turn. Therefore, I'm gonna persuade her and lead her to the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There, I will give her vineyards back to her. What vineyards? The ones you took? The ones you destroyed back in verse 12? Yep. Yeah, those vineyards. The ones I destroyed. I will give her vineyards back to her. I will restore what was broken. And I will make the Valley of Achor into a gateway of hope. Valley of Achor means valley of trouble. So this is like, I will turn trouble valley into a gateway of hope. I'm gonna make things better. I'm gonna restore things. And then look at this. There she will respond, right? I'm gonna have a relationship with her and she's gonna respond. Look, she's gonna respond as she did in the days of her youth. As in the day she came out of the land of Egypt. He's, he's, you can see he's talking relationally here. Way back when I first rescued her from Egypt, when we were first married, Things were going well, and then, and then it didn't take very long before she started to be unfaithful and cheating on me over and over again. She's abandoned me. She's rejected me. She's betrayed me. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take her back to the, the very same wilderness that I met her in, and I'm going to woo her. I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning, and I'm going to reset the relationship like it was when I first married her. That's incredible. He's resetting and restoring. That's the surprising part of the chapter. All right, final question. What does this have to do with us? So, can I have my questions back up here? Who is this about Israel? What was the problem? Spiritual adultery. What was God's response? Well, there's a punishment. There is a God taking difficult circumstances and using them to draw his people back to himself. And then when he draws them back to himself, he resets things to the way they were and, and, and restores and then, what does this have to do with us? Okay, so this is cool, Mario. I literally did not know any of that was in the Bible. That's neat. But that's a bunch of people a long time ago. What does that have to do with any of us in this room in the year 2024? I mean, does this really have anything to do with us? And I think the answer is yes. Look at verse 23. This is the way the chapter ends. Hosea 2, 23. It says, I will sow her in the land for myself, and I will have compassion on no compassion. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he will say, you are my God. At first glance, you might say, this doesn't have anything to do with us. This is about Israel. And specifically that period of time. 
I will sow her in the land. Like I will plant Israel back in the land. In other words, when Israel is one time at some point destroyed by Assyria and they're taken away, I'm going to let them go back to their land and rebuild, which did happen. Okay, I'm going to sow her in the land for myself, right? So that is not talking about us. That's not our land. That's land way far away from here, right? I will sow her in the land. He's talking about the land that Israel, the promised land. So that's not us. And I will have compassion on no compassion. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And if you remember, no compassion is the name of the girl from the last chapter, the daughter. And not my people is the name of the son, right? That's what he was named. And he will say, you are my God. At first glance, we go, yeah, this is just about these two particular people and these people that live in this particular land. But in principle, is there a sense in which this is true of us? Is there a sense in our lives, those of us who are Christians and believe in Jesus, that there was a point in our life when we were not his people and something happened and we became his people. Does that apply to us? Because I think it does. In fact, the apostle Peter thought it did. I want, you to, I want you to show you what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2. So this is hundreds of years later. He's not talking about Israel. He's talking to uh, Christians. These are people who believe in Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. Some of them are Jewish. Some of them are Gentile. Okay. So we got these people who are just, they're Christians. And this is what Peter says to them. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's saying this to the believers of Jesus, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now look at the next phrase. Once you were not a people, but now you are what? God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. What is Peter thinking about right there? You know what I think he's thinking about? Hosea. Hosea was a very significant Jewish book. Peter was a very significant Jewish person. There's no, it seems to me there's almost no way he's not thinking about that passage as he says this, right? It would be like me. I'm a Christian pastor. Imagine if I got up here and I said as a Christian pastor, for God so loved the world that he, and then I finished the sentence with something about God's love. I can't imagine anybody would go, oh, what an interesting way to phrase it, that he must have made up just in this very moment, right? No, it's too similar to the English Bible. It's too similar to John chapter 3. I'm obviously taking a section of Scripture and applying it to whatever I'm talking about. That's got to be what he's doing here. It seems to me, you once were not a people, but now you're God's people. What applied to those people in Hosea, it applies to Christians. It applies to people who believe in Jesus. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. This becomes true in our lives through the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we would be his people. Well, what about all the marriage imagery that was in Hosea chapter two? Is that like for Israel alone? Like you see God talking to Israel as if Israel is his estranged wife that he's gonna win back. Is that just for Israel or is that about us? I mean, I'll just read one of the verses. It's in there a lot, but look at verse 20 of Hosea two. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness and you will know Yahweh. Is that just something for Israel being his wife or is that something that could apply to us? That applies to us too. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is the Apostle Paul, again, hundreds of years later, and he's not talking just to Jewish people. He's talking to the people in Corinth, okay? So this is 2 Corinthians. The people in Corinth would have been a church. It would have been a group of people who believe in Jesus. I'm sure some of them were Jewish people, but probably most of them were Gentile people right? These are just people who have surrendered their lives to Jesus, right? They're Christians. And this is what he says to them when he writes to them. Verse 2 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, 
because I have promised you, now this is interesting, look at the analogy. I've promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. Paul says, the reason I'm concerned about your behavior before God is because I want to present you to Jesus as his bride. He's not talking about Israel. He's talking about people like us. You see the same kind of imagery in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Okay, so we've got a marriage relationship here. How are we supposed to love our wives? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor. I think this is bridal imagery. Without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. And it's not just through those two passages. It's in the book of Revelation a whole lot too. We are the, not, just, not just Israel being the wife. We, those people who believe in Jesus, we're the bride of Christ. Now I can imagine me saying we are the bride of Christ. That could be something that's difficult to hear and understand and want to deal with, um, especially if you're a man, okay? I can imagine as a man, you go, I'm the bride of Christ. That's the last thing I wanted to hear this morning. I'm Jesus' wife. I don't want to be Jesus' wife. Why didn't you tell me this is what Christianity was about? I could have done the Buddhist thing. Somebody offered me the Buddhist thing. I, I turned it down and now I got to be Jesus' wife? Right? I don't want to be the bride of Christ. And so this idea of, well, I don't want to be the bride of Christ, I, th- I want you to, first of all, I, I totally understand. In fact, I can remember the first time that this was said in such a way that it bothered me. I was uh, 22 years old, maybe 23 years old. Um, I moved to Texas, Dallas, Texas, to be a youth director, a youth minister at this church. And there was a guy that was there who was Sunday school teacher. And then on the side, he was a Christian counselor. Actually, the reverse of that. He was a Christian counselor for a living. And then he taught Sunday school at our church. And one day we were talking about marriage and we were talking about this passage, Ephesians 5, and wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he said to me, um, he was talking about, I think he's used Heidi's name. He, he said, Heidi's not the only one that has to submit. You have to remember, Mario. And this is the way he phrased it. He said, you're not just a husband, you're also a wife. And when he said it, I went, I am not a wife. <laughs> I said, I, I am not Jesus' wife. Okay, now here we are 20 years later and you wanna know what my position is now? I still believe I'm not Jesus' wife, okay? And what I said to him back then is the same thing I believe now and I wanna make this clear. It is the collective of all of the people who Jesus loves, that's the bride of Christ. It's the church that's the bride of Christ. I'm not the bride of Christ. You're not the bride of Christ. She's not the bride of Christ. No one individual one of us is Jesus' wife. It's the collective, the whole church, all of the people, millions of people for whom Jesus Christ died and he has redeemed them and he's gonna live with them forever. And the collective, we're the bride of Christ. Meaning what? Meaning when we live with him forever, like he's, going, he's the husband in the relationship. He makes vows to us. We make vows to him. He lets us into his household and he takes care of us and loves us and protects us forever. That's the analogy, and it's the collection. It's all of the church that is the bride of Christ. I think that's helpful to know. I think that's helpful to know if you're a man, right? Because you're like, well, I don't know what I want to be. Is it, well, I hope I got rid of that worry for you. And I don't think it's good if you're a woman, to be honest. Like, if you're a woman, you're thinking, you as an individual, I'm the, the bride of Christ. Mm. I mean, if you just think about that for like an hour... And then you look at your husband. That's not going to be good. 
No, it is the whole church collectively. We are the bride of Christ, the object of Jesus' love and protection and care forever. And if that still bothers you, if, one, if understanding it's the collective and not as the, it's not the individual, if it still bothers you, even after hearing all that, I would have to say to you, you're just going to have to get over it because it's all over the Bible. <laughs> We're the bride of Christ and that's how it is. And in fact, you are also called branches and children and body parts and sheep. There's all sorts of analogies you may have to get over. But in conclusion, here's the story of Hosea. We learned it in chapter one and in chapter two, we kind of just learned it again. God has a people. His people abandon him. And when that happens, God may do one or more of these things. He may discipline. He may use bad circumstances to turn you back to him. And if and when you repent, he forgives and he resets and he restores. And that is good news. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much. I was thinking about this earlier today. I can't imagine. I bet you there are, there are probably might not even be a person in the room who didn't walk in having at some point in their life before today heard something like, you've sinned and God doesn't like it. But seeing it the way that you inspired Hosea to say it, I think makes us see something that maybe we didn't see before. The fact that we would abandon you and give credit for your goodness to other things and worship things that you've given to us rather than you and to do it over and over and over again, like personally rejecting you in the way that we live our lives. And the fact that you would then persuade us and speak tenderly to us and say, why don't we go back to the way it was when we first got together? That's incredible mercy. So I pray you would help us to be people who are repentant and people who are restored. And I thank you for resetting the relationship that we screwed up. I thank you for that. I thank you for the gospel. I pray we'd never take it for granted. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.